ask you to turn in your Bibles if you have them this morning. Hopefully you do. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning of Exodus chapter 20. Thankful for, as always, our worship today. Thankful for Kevin and Scott, Miss Diane with our student choir. It's always good to have them, I know. So what a joy it is for us as having sung praise to the Lord to turn to His Word. And what a gift His Word is to us. And today we'll be looking at these two verses serving as an introduction as we begin our new series uh, appropriately entitled The Ten Commandments. Because we'll be looking at all ten, hopefully. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Reading from God's Word, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to be together in this place. What a gift that is. So, Father, help us not to take this moment for granted. Help us to realize that this moment will never be again just like this. We'll never be in this room with these same people at this same time under these same circumstances again. And so, God, may you do now, just like you always do, Father, speak to our hearts, mold us and shape us, Make us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And if we, if we are far from you, call us back to yourself. Be patient with us, Father. And help us to see clearly, even more today than ever before, the beauty of your salvation and the joy that we have in serving you and following you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From a very early age, we're taught the Ten Commandments. I remember in training union, some of y'all may know what that is, some not, that I was told early that we had to learn the Ten Commandments so we would learn them. And we didn't have any fancy devices. The teacher that I had simply had a ruler. And if you got them out of order, you get your hand popped. You know what I'm talking about a little bit. It's a different day and age. That's fine. It was a little bit later in life that I was doing a VBS in Mexico and just kind of working with some kids, and the teacher came up and she said, I'm going to teach y'all the Ten Commandments. I said, this ain't going to work. You better have a big ruler, you know. I have to learn them this quick. And sure enough, she had these, this way about it where she started using her fingers, and she started going, one, pointing straight up, you know. You're pointing straight up. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one. You see what I'm saying? And I was like, oh, that's easy. I got that one. And then she kept going. Two, don't bow down to idols. Y'all see how she did that? Bowing down? And I'm sitting there going, man, if I'd have known that, my whole, I, I would have learned these quicker if I knew you had finger motions with them. Three, three, do not use the Lord's name in vain. And she took those three fingers and put them over her mouth. And I was like, that makes sense. She kept right on going. I mean, seven. I don't, I'm not going to do them all for you. Some of y'all are like, please do them all. I don't know them either. But, <laughs> but she had like seven. And so with seven, you had five, you know, and then you had two. And it was like, do not commit adultery. So it's like a wedding cake with two people. You know, it's good. 
I remember the one that got everybody's attention, everybody loved, was number six, you shall not murder. So it was the five plus this one, and this finger here became a gun and shot all these people. And so it was the uh, one that everybody loved the most, everybody's favorite. I'm sure it's the same way that it was taught in the wilderness at the VBS here in Exodus chapter 20. God was holding it there as they're heading to the promised land. The people of God are hearing from God. What's true, though, is that even the most biblically uninformed people know the Ten Commandments, or they've heard of them at least. They've seen them maybe hanging, and that's somewhat dangerous. It's somewhat dangerous. They, we need to understand that these commandments shouldn't be taken in isolation from the rest of God's Word. They shouldn't be isolated into a unique place so as to be distorted or misunderstood, especially in their function and purpose. Because what happens, I think, now, even in our day, of a, day and age, more than ever, when truth is relative and everybody thinks you can find your own, and when morality is, is rampantly going into immorality, even more than ever before, we need to know the Ten Commandments. And this morning, and hopefully through these weeks, I want to demonstrate why. My hope in this series is to put these commandments in their proper context. Understand them in light of what God is doing through His glory and for His name. And in placing them in that proper context, in the overall teaching of Scripture, understand them especially in light of our Savior Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. And my hope is that as we go through these, that each and every one of us would become faithful followers of Him. More faithful than ever before. Loving Him more than we've ever loved Him before as we seek to follow after Him. So, as in any passage, we need to understand the context of Exodus chapter 20. Now, Exodus, the first 20 chapters especially, are some of the most glorious passages in Scripture. I love Exodus as it starts out. The people of God are in bondage in Exodus chapter 1 in Egypt. The Hebrews have become a great nation, Exodus 1 tells us. Remember how they got there. At the end of Genesis, the, there was a famine in the land, and God had raised up Joseph to the number two position in Egypt. Joseph had prepared what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph had prepared the way the brothers come. They bring even Jacob into Egypt, and he's provided for and cared for in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. At the end of Genesis, the people of God are cared for in the midst of the famine in Egypt. Between Genesis and Exodus, some 400 years pass. And in that time, Exodus 1 tells us that a new Pharaoh has cropped up. And this new Pharaoh didn't know Joseph and didn't know Joseph's God. And this new Pharaoh considered the Hebrews to be a threat. Even though they were the slaves that were building his kingdom, they considered them to be a threat because they'd come too strong. So he makes this order, this mandate, that all of the babies, the Hebrew children, would be killed. Remember, that's how we got Moses hiding in the reeds in the river. Through that, we, we recognize that the intensity of the persecution on those in Egypt, the Hebrews there, the intensity of that persecution had only grown greater. And so God calls Moses out. And there he speaks to Moses through that burning bush, the first time God had truly spoken to his people in some 430 some odd years. He speaks to Moses in that bush that's burning and not consumed, and he says, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. 
gives him his name and tells him, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now is the time for me to fulfill the promises that I made. And to say that the Hebrews simply left Egypt would be an understatement. You remember how it went down. Having been in slavery there, in bondage for those 400 years, the people had heard the stories of creation. They'd heard the stories of the ark, I'm sure. They passed those stories down. They'd heard how God visited Abraham, how God provided Isaac in his old age, how Jacob had come along, and then the brothers, and how they got into Egypt. Surely they'd heard about the promises that were made to Abraham, how God was going to give them a land and make them great and bless them. Surely they heard the stories of Joseph and how God raised him up even in Egypt to bring them there and provide for them. Now, at the same time, they'd heard the gods in Egypt. They'd heard of what the gods in Egypt do, and they'd seen them worshipped. In fact, surely as slaves, they had built cathedrals or, or temples, if you will, to the gods of Egypt. They'd been taught then the God, that their God is not the same, that he's greater, that he's stronger, that he's more powerful, that he's the creator of all things. And surely when he comes... When he comes here to Moses and Moses appears, that's going to be demonstrated. Because what happens as Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, Moses began, begins to call these plagues up, if you will. And God tells him to do so. And the ten plagues come. And now, like had not been seen in years, hundreds of years, the power of God is on display. Knowing that these plagues are not there, they're not there as just some random acts that the Lord is going to do. These plagues are not there as some random things he's going to pick up and say, I, I think it'd be nice to turn the Nile to blood or, or to put a, a bunch of flies out there. That's not what happens here. What's happening here is the Lord is demonstrating in every one of these things that the gods of Egypt have no power against the God of Israel. He tears them down in each and every, demonstrating that they have no power, they have no authority. The God of his people, the God of the Hebrews, is greater, stronger, and more mighty than any other. They witness God's power in those plagues. They'd also witness God's protection. Not only had God demonstrated his power, he demonstrates his protection as they come out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea. And it says that there's a pillar of cloud that protects the people between the people and the armies of Egypt. And the Red Sea parts and God's people cross on dry land to get to the other side. And we know what happens to the Egyptian army. It's crushed. And God protects them. But not only we see the protection, we also see his provision. They'd taken part of his provision. His power had been on display. His protection had been on display. But now as they're walking through the wilderness, you're feeding, trying to feed some three million, if you will, that are traveling through. And how is that the case? Every single morning they wake up and there's new mercies laying on the ground for them for bread to eat. The manna has come from heaven every single day and the Lord provides for his people. When they need water, all you got to do is go to the rock and speak and it provides water for them. God provides for his people in every way. Even when they're grumbling a little bit, God takes care of them. As creation taught them, their God made everything and rules over everything. And just as sure as he spoke to Abraham, just as sure as he made his promises to him, now he's fulfilling those promises. 
And in Exodus chapter 19, the people arrive at Mount Sinai. It takes them about three months to get there from the time they left Egypt. And Moses goes up to God to hear a word from him. Having been in bondage, the Lord is now going to give his people their identity. Having been in bondage, having been, having been separated and in Egypt, the Lord is now calling them to himself and he's going to tell them who they are and why they're here. And the Lord says in Exodus 19 to Moses, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. In verse 4 he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." The Lord says, you've been in slavery, you've been in bondage, you may think that's who you are, but now, now I'm calling you to myself and I'm telling you, you are my treasured possession. You are my people. And I've called you here to this place to demonstrate that to you. The Lord gives them the identity. God told Moses to alert the people to prepare themselves, get ready. The time has come for the Lord is going to speak to them. The Lord is coming to speak, and we see in chapter 19 there, verses 16 through 20, how the Lord comes down to Mount Sinai, and it tells us several things about it. Imagine the scene, if you will. The people have gathered around at the base. It says that fire and smoke engulfed the mountain. It says that the mountain began to tremble greatly. It says that a sound of a trumpet got louder and louder and louder and that God begins to speak and it sounds like thunder. Imagine the scene. The people of God gathered around the mountain. They just witnessed the plagues in Egypt. They just seen the Red Sea departed, uh, aparted. They just walked through on dry land. They've gathered up here at Mount Sinai, having been provided by God through the manna every morning and the water from the rock. And now they come to the mountain and it begins to shake and fire and smoke engulf it and a trumpet sound comes and it gets louder and louder and louder and God begins to speak and it sounds like thunder. Now the one that they'd heard about for centuries the one that created everything, the one that made promises to Abraham, the one that wrestled with Jacob, the God that provided through Joseph, the God who delivered them through the plagues in the Red Sea of Egypt, the God who provided for them in the wilderness, the God who said, you are my treasured possession. That God, the one true God, has engulfed the mountain and begins to speak in the thunder. The thunder. And so he says, I am the Lord your God. I just want to point out three simple things as we prepare ourselves for these Ten Commandments. Three simple things as we look to this passage and see what's happening and see what's going on. First is this, the commandments, the law that we see here comes from God himself. It comes from God himself. It says in verse 1, and God spoke all these words. Here in this scene, this is not Moses reporting what he heard God said. This is not Moses going up to the mountain and getting a word and coming back and telling him. That's what had happened before in chapter 19. No, this time it is God speaking. God speaking himself. In fact, we can see 
After God gives them the Ten Commandments, the mountains smoking and trembling, down in Exodus 20, verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. In other words, they heard the voice of God, and they're like, don't do that again. Moses, you go tell us next time. We'll follow. But not this time. This time, God wanted to make sure they heard his voice. For he had not spoken to them for some 400 years, but now he's going to speak. And now he's going to speak clearly. As I laid out the scene, it's clear that whatever is said here, at this moment, as they've approached Sinai, is of vital importance. It's of vital importance. As Isaiah tells us, it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. And here as he comes, we see it great and glorious. The people were told not to come too close, to stay back some at the base of the mountain. Exodus 20, 21 tells us that they stood far off. We need to remember that God stands himself in unapproachable holiness. And to approach him in unrighteousness would surely mean death. For the people to get too close in their unrighteousness would mean death. And we see this throughout Scripture. You don't come to God unless you come to God on His terms, not yours. And so ultimately, they stand far off and they are ready to listen. The mountain shaking, fire and smoke engulfing it, sound of a trumpet getting louder and louder, peals of thunder roaring, and now God speaks. But notice how God begins here. Notice the scene. Think of it. It's incredible. But it's not that God comes here as a harsh judge. You would think in this scene with glory and might, God does not come with an angry tone of a harsh judge. He doesn't come with the clear authority of a drill sergeant, if you will, just simply calling out the orders to the people, obey me, listen to me. He doesn't come that way. In fact, he doesn't even simply come as a strict teacher walking through the rules at the beginning of the year for her classroom even. He doesn't come that way either. Instead, he identifies himself, but he identifies himself differently than he'd done before. Before he'd identified himself, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the promise. I've come. He could have even identified himself as I'm the creator who made everything. That's not how he does it. He identifies himself to his people. The first time he had spoken in some 400 years, he identifies himself to his people in the immediate context. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He could have claimed his authority as creator. He made everything. He gets determined the rules. He could have claimed that authority. He could have pointed simply to his powerful presence on the mountain that day and said, y'all better listen to me. He could have done that. But no. God says, I am the one who has redeemed you. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who called you out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. I'm the one who has redeemed you for myself. I saw you in your plight. I saw you in your oppression. I saw you there and I did not leave you. I came for you, he says. As chapter 19 tells us, They are his treasured people. And the Lord begins with the fact that he has already redeemed them. 
Hear me when I say this. As he gives them these Ten Commandments, as he's going to give them this law, he doesn't want them to think that they have to keep this law to get out of Egypt. He doesn't want them to think they have to keep this law to find salvation. He doesn't want them to think they have to keep this law to be redeemed. That's not the case at all. He has already redeemed them. He's already saved them. And for us today, this matters, right? This matters because we recognize this truth. There's no way we could keep all of these rules and keep all of these laws and find salvation in and of ourselves. For we are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace. And God says here from the beginning, you are in slavery, you are in bondage, and I came for you. I pursued after you. I called you to myself, and I saved you. Now, I am your God. Listen to what he says there. For years, they had heard these stories they hadn't heard from him. For years, they had heard the stories of their God and what he had done and what he had accomplished, but they hadn't seen it, maybe. They'd heard the, the works of the Egyptian gods even. Possibly they'd heard those stories and they're, they're wondering what may be the case. But now the Lord shows up and he speaks and says, I am your God. The Lord has called him and said this, not only have I redeemed you, I want to be with you. I want to be with you in your presence I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. I'm your God. You're my people. We're together. I'm the one of the promises. I'm the true one who's come. I'm the Savior. I'm, I am your God. Second person singular, plural here, a personal saving relationship with his people. God is there. And it was on this basis. And we must not forget it's on this basis that he gives his law. Not as a judge, but as a redeemer. As a redeemer, we owe our salvation and our redemption to the Lord. If you're a child of God this morning, it's because he saved you. In fact, if we can even use this, because I think the scriptures does, to point us to what is coming, we recognize that we ourselves were in bondage of sin. We ourselves were in slavery to sin. And what happens to us is that the Lord came after us, and he provided the deliverer for us, one greater than Moses, Jesus Christ himself, and he came for us, and he saved us, and he redeemed us. Even sometimes when we weren't even looking for him, he called us to himself. And we're testimonies of this today. And so here we see the same rhythm and pattern here as we should expect in Exodus chapter 20. We owe our salvation and redemption to him. No one else could save them. No one else did and no one else could. And as the Lord your God who has redeemed you comes, here's how you shall now live. Putting it in this context and understanding is understanding our redemption has come. Christ Jesus has come. And now these commandments become not the things that save us or redeem us, becomes the way we should live in light of our salvation and redemption. This is how we live now. We as a people are bound to him. All people everywhere are bound to him as creator. But particularly as Jesus comes, as the Lord God comes here in Exodus 20, we are bound to him as redeemer. We're bound to him as redeemer. And here's how you should live. As he gives these then, we must remember that these commandments are not arbitrary. 
It's not just the Lord is pulling them out. It's not just he's just finding a couple things he thinks will be a good rules for you to follow. That's not the case at all. They're not arbitrary in any way, shape, or form. These commandments were given particularly or precisely because they reflect the character of God himself. The one who's called us and saved us. The one who's redeemed us. Which brings me to my second point. The law reflects the character of God. This is the nature of all laws in general. All, law, all laws reveal something about the country or the organization that they belong to. They reveal about what you care about, what you desire, what you want to do, what you want to keep. They reveal something about the lawmakers. All laws reflect the character of that institution or organization. And just as God is good, His law is good. Many people see rules and commandments as a burden. Who loves these things? They bind you up. They hold you back. They keep you from being all that you want to be. If I didn't have so many rules, I, could, I would be more happy. If I didn't have so many rules to follow, I'd, 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 I'd flourish more. I could be more free. We think that they're stopping our freedom in every way. And I want you to know, if that's your reasoning now for these commandments, that's the same reasoning Satan used in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, God told you you couldn't eat of it? He's trying to keep you from something. He's trying to hold you back. He doesn't want to give you all the blessings of life and salvation. God's trying to hold you back, Adam and Eve. Don't follow that. He don't want you to flourish. That's the reasoning Satan uses. These commandments are not ones that have come to us to hold us back. These commandments are come to us so we, living in light of our salvation and redemption, can be free. Can be free. God has come for us, and he's come for us to have abundant life. Don't forget his word. He's come that we have abundant life, and abundant life comes with freedom, true freedom, as John chapter 8 says. He wants us to flourish. God wants us to know him and to follow after him and for us to flourish as his people. Think about how much life would be better if everyone kept the Ten Commandments, right? If all of us kept them, there would be no copyright laws. We wouldn't have to worry about plagiarism and stuff. There'd be no patents. You wouldn't have to do that. No alarm systems. You wouldn't even have to keep up with your keys, praise God. If everybody would keep this, there would be none of these things. We wouldn't need contracts. We wouldn't need courts just keeping these tens. Just think about all the things we would not need to have in our world if we would just keep them. That's because they're designed for us to flourish, not to hold us back. I read where upwards of 20,000 to 40,000 new laws are added to the books every year in America. We worried about 10. Y'all talking about 20 to 40,000. I read where they tried to get an assessment of this one time back in back a couple 15 years ago. So the, the House asked a research organization to assess how many criminal laws are on the books in America. After five years, that organization responded, there's not enough manpower and not enough resources for us to figure this out. As Kevin DeYoung has said, these commandments were not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. These are rules for how free people stay free. These are rules of how free people stay free, how God is a God of freedom and he brings freedom to his people and he wants you to stay in his freedom following after him. That way the Ten Commandments are not harsh. 
They're not mean. It's not God being ugly to us. They're good and they're righteous and they're holy. Their God is good and His rules are good for us. And in this case, hopefully as His people, we say with the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Not a law that we look down upon, not a law we hate, not a law we despise, but one we delight in and we rejoice in it. And why do we delight in it? Because we delight in God himself. We rejoice in who God is, for he is good. Which brings me to my third little point here. The law teaches us how to love God. It teaches us how to love God. The law was given in a covenant relationship. Back in Exodus 19, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Here, the Lord in this covenant relationship, you see two parts, and everybody's got a part to play. The Lord is the one who redeems. God redeems us to be with us. He's the redeemer. And then our part is to keep his commands. Obey him, right? That's the covenant relationship that has been built here in Egypt. Uh, out of Egypt coming into the promised land. So God has developed this covenant to say, I have redeemed you and saved you. Now you obey me. You're my treasured possession. We see that covenant relationship and how these Ten Commandments read is in light of that. And I don't want this to be confusing, but I want you to understand that since it's this covenant relationship, the the law is not necessarily commands that we are to simply obey. It is agreement, an agreement that must be fulfilled. When you have a covenant, you've got to fulfill your side of the agreement. And so God says, I've redeemed you and saved you. Now you keep my commandments. You have to fulfill your side of that agreement. Notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, we didn't keep our end of the agreement. When these commands were given, God's people do do not keep the end of this agreement. We don't keep our end. We're all sinners. We all have turned from these commandments. We all have turned away from them. In fact, if you're just reading through them today, sometimes it can be overwhelming, right? When the Apostle Paul went through them, he said, yeah, I'm good. I was good all the way till I got to number 10. And when I realized you can't covet, then I realized that I was a sinner and I had broken every single one of them before. When you see Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that he's not just talking about the actions of our hands, it's our motives and our heart. When we come to the law, we recognize, we recognize that this law rules over us as a wicked judge in some ways. It is punishing us. We come to the law and we see that we can't keep our end of the agreement. We can't keep our part of the covenant. We have failed on this. And when we do not obey his commands, that is what we call sin. And the wages of that sin is death because we have not kept our end, our part. We couldn't keep our end of the agreement. We couldn't fulfill the rules of the covenant. So God sent his son to be one of us. We couldn't keep it. So God sent his son to be one of us. He did not sin. 
He kept every one of these laws. He kept all of them for us. His heart was always pure. You see, the law teaches us every single day that we're sinners. When we read it, we learn that we have not kept it. We've not followed after it. It rules over us and we are judged by it. But Jesus has come along. And Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus, who committed no sin, is not under the judgment of the law. And Jesus ends that judgmental reign of the law over us. As Romans 10, 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what does it mean by being the end of the law? It means that it has no judgmental reign over us anymore. We don't keep it to try to earn favor with God because we couldn't. We failed. And it has no judgmental rule over us for Christ is the end of it. For he has come and he kept it. And guess what he did for us? He goes to the cross and he takes our sin our broken promises, our rebellion. And there he dies and he crushes them there. And so now when God looks upon his children, he doesn't see our unrighteousness and our, our sin against his law. He doesn't see that. He sees Christ's righteousness and his goodness. He sees what Christ has done for us. So now the law is not a judgment to us. What is it? Why keep it? Because the law demonstrates the character of God. Be holy for he is holy and because it is how we tell him we love him. It's a life of thanksgiving before him. We don't just say we love him, right? We talk about this all the time. Don't just tell me with your mouth you love me. Don't we want this from our people? Don't we want this from our children, from our husband, from our wife? Don't just tell me with your mouth that you love me. Show me with your actions. And here is what the Lord says. Listen to the overwhelming nature of his word in talking about this. In John 14, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. That's simple, right? Plain reading of the text. You don't have to look into that. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's who loves me. Or he goes on, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Do y'all see what Jesus is saying? It's not just with the words of your mouth that you say you love God. It's with your actions of your life, keeping his commandments. When they try to stump Jesus, can you summarize what's the, what's the greatest commandment? Which one is it? Which one is it? Jesus, instead of picking out one of the commandments, summarizes them. And how does he summarize them? Here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, your soul, and your mind. The greatest commandment is summarized, summarizing all ten by saying, how do you do it? What is it? Love God. But then he says the second one is just like it, right? Not just love God, love neighbor. You see, how we demonstrate our love for God is by keeping his word and his commandments. How we demonstrate our love for our neighbor is by keeping his words and his commandments. And so John tells us in 1 John, if you say you know God and you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar, he says. You can look it up, 1 John 2, 4. You want to say you know God with your mouth, but you don't follow him, then you're a liar. Or he keeps going in 1 John 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That's what it is. The love of God is demonstrated in us is that we follow him. And his commandments, friends, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, his commandments are not a burden. 
And why are they not a burden to us anymore? They're not a burden because we don't have the pressure of fulfilling them to find salvation. Christ has done all of that for us. Christ has fulfilled the law and the commands. Christ has done everything needed for us to have life and salvation. We simply trust in the one who's redeemed us and they're not a burden for us because they don't stand in judgment over us. They're our joy. They're our joy because we keep the commandments because we love our Savior. We love him. And we don't just say that, we live for him. And how do you live for him? Keep your commitments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't put any other gods before him. Don't put any idol in your heart that is above him. Don't take his name in vain. Hold him dear. That's how we love him. That's how we love him. The commandments teach us this. They're our joy because they're not our burden. We love God, so let's follow him. We love God, so let's live for him. We love God, so we want to keep them. Have you ever been overwhelmed with someone's care and love for you? You know that person that has always been there for you, even when you didn't know you need them. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That person that... They've always loved you. They've always cared for you. They've always done so many things for you. If they called you right now, you would get up and leave this place because they needed you, right? How much more so is it for us and God? The one who has saved us and redeemed us. The one who called us out of our sin and out of our darkness. The one who took away our guilt and our shame. The one who took our problem and took him on himself and he made our problems into the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who went to the cross and took our sin, our broken commitments, our broken promises. He took them all upon himself and he ended them. And so now in Christ we have life and we have it abundantly. How much more so should we want to love him and follow him? How much more so should we wake up every day and say, I want to love Jesus today. I'm not putting any other gods before him. I want to love Jesus today. I'm going to be faithful to my husband and my wife. I'm going to love Jesus today. I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to cheat and I'm not going to steal. I'm going to love Jesus today. That's what I'm going to do. Friends, when you realize the glorious truth that Christ Jesus has saved you and redeemed you, then the posture we have before him is, here I am, Lord, ready to follow you. And if you say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar, he says. May none of us be liars here. Heaven forbid that any of us would seek that. May we all love him and follow him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It's good. Thank you for the truth of your word, Father. It's so rich for us. God, I just simply want to pray now for those who may be in this room, who may be far from you. They haven't been loving you with their life and with their actions, God. I pray even now you would call them back to yourself. Maybe they've been distant over this last year, God, distant from you. Would you call them back to yourself today? Help them to see your glorious truth of salvation and life and call them back to yourself. Father, for those in this room who haven't been following you with their lifestyle, God, may they repent and tell you today they love you and from this day forward, spend every moment demonstrating that. God, you're the one who changes hearts and lives and you're the one who speaks to us and tells us the truth 
your plans, Father, to prosper us. And you've given us your word and your commandments to do just that. God, may each and every person in this place love you, love your Savior, Jesus Christ, and live their life for you. And may this moment be a a dedication to that truth, that desire. Father, you are holy. Help us to be holy. If there's someone today here that's far from God, you need to come back today. Today's the time. He's been good to you. Come back to him. If you want to join us, be a part of us here as we call others to Christ, let's stand together and sing.